we are going to have herd immunity against assholes. It is just going to happen. <laughs> You're listening to The Occupational Philosophers with Simon Banks and John Rice. And welcome back to another episode of The Occupational Philosophers. John, I'm going to cut straight to it. What's caught your curious eye this week? Well, hi there, Simon. What has caught my curious eye this week? Well, for the first time in a very long time, I managed to get to go to lunch with my wife just the two of us, no kids. It was fantastic. It was worth paying that, just two hours with no interruptions of kids. But um, we had the fine dining experience. So we had little bits of food on big plates. And it was all very described very beautifully with things like we had a sesame emulsion, which got me thinking. I just thought that was a painting term. But no, it's not. You can have a sesame emulsion painted on your plate. So I just had me thinking about all the crazy words we use on food menus, some of which are completely ridiculous. <laughs> such as, you know, things were nestled in a delicate foam, for example. <laughs> or, who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought? Served with a deconstructed amuse-bouche. There you go. That's a good one for you. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and smashed in the face avocado, anyone? And hauled in on a pallet of fries. So, yeah, I just started thinking about how crazy it is with that, how many words they use to describe something quite simple. <laughs> my fa- I started to then make my own up. So I, I decided on, see if you can guess what this is, incarcerated braised poulet guarded by a plume of scintillated pomme de terre fingers. Any well, thoughts? Poulet's, poulet's chicken and fingers might be something like sort of skinny, like chips, maybe? Yes, uh, chicken pie and chips, that is. <laughs> Well, well, there you go. Now, look, I'm going to go straight to my curious thing this week. Yes, mine's tell the, us. Mine's the opposite of that. And I've been doing a branding workshop and how to sort of talk about your brand and all that type of stuff. And what was most interesting from that was less is more. So how to say what you need to say with less words, which is a long way away from your chicken foam guarded by a, an army of fries <laughs> situation you had going on. So just the ability, say less and you'll get further because our mind is overloaded with information. <laughs> so, yeah, chicken pie and chips is the way to actually put it on the menu. Less is more. Okay, we did so need let- more after that meal, by the way. By the time we came out of that, we needed a bag of chips because we were <laughs> not full at all. This sort of takes me in a different direction, but when I uh, worked in a lot of lot of art galleries and you would read the explanation of the artwork and you'd almost need a thesaurus to read through it, if that makes sense. It'd be like a, a, t- like a, a one-page description and you'd get to about the first line and think, I don't know what you're talking about. And they wonder why people get turned off by art sometimes. But anyway, there you go, John. Maybe a bit more chicken pie and chips and... There's a gallery in Tasmania, which is very famous, called the Mona Gallery, and they've got two descriptions. They've got one which is called the Art Wank, which is like the, <laughs> <laughs> which is like the sort of the artistic, you know, as if the curator's written it. Then they've got the ordinary language, which is just the, <laughs> some bloke saying, so, you know, it's a bloke, a bloke in a field. <laughs> oh, I'm definitely the latter. Uh, and I'll... What, uh, I'll, I'll I'll put a link to that gallery in our show notes as well. 
that's enough of our curious week, John. Let's, um... uh, today's a, a guest episode, Simon. And I think we have another curious cat in with us this week, as we would say. As always. So let's get ready for our amazing guest we have coming up. Now, our guest blends, blends, blends stand-up <laughs> comedy and physical <laughs> comedy that delivers smack-you-in-the-face interactive shows that has literally delighted and thrilled audiences all over the world. Our guest brings people together through creating unforgettable shared experiences and believes that laughter should be a force for good. Welcome to Tamara Campbell. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Hey, Tamara, maybe just uh, following off of my own and Simon's curious thing this week, has there been something that's caught your eye this week? That's been curious, imaginative, or creative. What's uh, what's been going on? I became very curious this week around why teenage children don't ever accept no as an answer. <laughs> I really did, <laughs> and the way that the conversation you had just keeps coming back. It's like it's a a mouse on a wheel. You get a break for <laughs> ten minutes, and then there's another argument. Oh no, but wait, what about this? Have you thought about that? Why can't I do it? I became very curious around what it is around that time of life where no is just not an answer. Why can I not just say no? Because it, it I can't. It doesn't compute. It doesn't <laughs> compute. So I really, I've got very curious around whether that was my problem or their problem or a joint problem or just something I should ignore. And eventually I just ignored it. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a way out. I have a 12-year-old, so I'm about to go into the teenage years. So I'm seeing it start to happen. Any tips? <laughs> just just don't ignore it, is it? <laughs> I, I, my kids are good, but when they decide they want something and I say no, maybe I just don't say no enough. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe I need to say no more often. I think you've touched our parental audience right in the heart as well. But look, we go all over the world. Where are you in the world today? I am in the beautiful seaside village of Kiama, the gateway to the south coast of New South Wales, apparently. Now, just to give a bit of a reference, it's what direction is that from Sydney? It is south from Sydney, right on the coast, right on our beautiful coastline. And if you were to drive there, how long would it take? It's about an hour and a half from the airport and we're famous for the blowhole. In terms of what you do, I mean, Simon gave that introduction there tomorrow, but how would you kind of describe what you do if you were just going out talking to people about the kind of stuff you involve yourself in? How would you say it? Well, if I'm giving the layman's version like the Mona does, the everyman version is I'm a physical comedian. I make people laugh, typically in a, in a more street theatre-based environment, so outdoor festivals and events. The uh, arty-farty version is that um, I like <laughs> to use my comedy and my sort of off-the-wall characters to really sort of push boundaries and create connections and allow people to see that they really do still have a beautiful, playful heart that makes them able to achieve anything, even what they think they can't do. So I use comedy for good. <laughs> a force for good. Force for good. So, look, if you would say you've got some intersections, and intersections meaning there's three or four things that cross over, and Tamara's maybe in the middle, or you're in the middle of that, what might they be? My intersections are definitely laughter, 
play and humanitarianism, I'd say. Humanness, maybe even humanness rather than humanitarianism. Well, they're kind of the same thing, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, laughter, play, humanness, I think. I like um, that. Yeah. If I were adding more, I'd probably say silliness and also you know, a bit of Peter Pan, like let's be growing up and respectful, but let's not grow up to the point where we lose our sense of anything fun and we just become boring and we have to drink in order to enjoy ourselves. <laughs> not that I'm not, I'm not dissing wine, by the way, I love wine, but, you know. <laughs> now, when you talk around being human, because it sort of links to that, what, what do you think it means to be human? In my personal opinion, being human is actually, it's all the grit. It's, knowing that you're not perfect, you're never going to be perfect, that there's probably 700 different versions of you, actually not that many, probably about 12 different versions of you, and they're all completely valid. And I think it's about the idea that humanness is everything but perfect. And I think that's the thing for me. It's that vulnerability, it's mistakes, it's, but more than that, it's even being able to admit that we make mistakes. It's being able to be loose and to be in a moment. I think that's what what humanness is. It's about the moment. It's like, and I know people say that, like, it's not the destination, it's the journey. But um, <laughs> but I really, I don't think it's even the journey. It's just the moment. It's moment to moment, isn't it? And the human is is all the grit of every single moment, whether that's joyful or devastating. Building on being human, like in part of your performance, you, you've literally performed all over the world. And when I look at your brag sheet, which we'll put a, a link to, you've been all over Europe and the Americas and Australia and all sorts of places. What's one of your highlight performances and why? Is there one which oh. you stand out? Wow. I mean, the, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I think, well, there are so many. You know, I have to say one of my favourite performances, and I just I don't want it to sound pretentious or braggy because it isn't, it just was one of my favourite performances, was I had the privilege of performing at um, Ula Saba in South Africa, which is Richard Branson's private game reserve for about 26 or probably 30 entrepreneurs and his staff and the lovely Sir Richard himself. And just the absolute joy and delight of this small audience in this very strange space. There was nothing, I wasn't even mic'd up. I had no lights on me. People were just sitting on couches and bar stools and it was not in a normal theatrical space in any way, shape or form. But it was just so, and I was told to go and get ready with almost no notice, you know, and like, right, we're going to do the thing. You're going to do your thing like in 20 minutes. I was like, shit, <laughs> okay. I had to, it just, there was just a really beautiful energy. And usually you think, oh, it's, a, it's when your audience is huge and everyone's going off. And, but it actually wasn't. And, I, and there, was, there was a professional photographer there and it's the photos that really make me love that moment because there's all these people's absolute joy and laughter captured in these gorgeous photos and like to me those photos show the absolute spirit the heart of humans when they laugh like just this uh, unstoppable joy in people's face and that's when I go okay my job's pretty cool because sometimes I freaking hate my job you know it's hard 
And sometimes when I see that, I'm like, I have the coolest job in the world. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just so yeah. So it was being able to see individual faces, like you know, people, photographs of people that I know really well, but seeing their faces animated in a way that you don't normally see them. It's just gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, that must be quite addictive to just see that captured and think, I want to, I want to recreate that again. I want to do that again. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, but I don't want to do it for me. I want to do it for them. You know, like mm. yeah, I want them to feel like that. Yeah. Now you've also performed at. I noted that you've performed at Glastonbury quite a few times. In fact, you performed there in 1999. I think it was the first. Then uh, 2003, 2004, 2005. 2007, 9, 2011, 13, 14, 15, 17, and 18. And I just and wanted then there to were know, no Tamara. <laughs> well, that's true, yeah. I just wanted to know which Glastonbury was the best Glastonbury and how have you stayed alive that long then after <laughs> that many Glastonburys? Because me and Simon have been to three or four and it's finished us off, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> You know what, Glastonbury was actually a massive challenge for me the first time I went because I don't like crowds, (laughs) if you can believe that. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. I I only like them when they're about four metres away from me looking at me, not when they're all around me touching me and, no, I mean, that sounds really mean. but So you you found social distancing quite an easy concept then? Oh, God, I absolutely love it. I love that I can turn around to someone and go, hey, step back, and it's okay. I'm not an asshole. You know, normally when you turn around and go, excuse me, you're a bit close, you were an asshole. Now it's okay. (laughs) Move back. No, I definitely have a personal space issue. But uh, Glastonbury, oh, Glastonbury is a treat. Once I got past how much it confronted my comfort zone, (laughs) like over and over and over again. I remember sitting and watching one show, I think they were called Your Dad, these two older guys called Your Dad, a British duo, and sitting in a field somewhere watching them do a show on a little riser and they played Bohemian Rhapsody and they had to get all the way through it without making a mistake and they gave me the little twirly-twirly thing that made noise for every time they made a mistake and I know that song inside out. So I would just like twirl it and every time they made a mistake they had to go back to the beginning and start again and I just howled and howled and howled with laughter for an hour. It took them an hour basically to play Bohemian Rhapsody and it was just such a delight and that's what I love. Like just you came across these little beautiful moments that just, you know, Mm. yeah, that's what I love about festivals in general. We are always very curious about what someone's journey's been to, you know, that they've taken to get them to where they are today. So we were just maybe building on some of that sort of reflections on some of those mass big performances you have, but maybe going back further to what led you to those. What are some of the big experiences that you sort of that stand out for you on your journey to where you are now? Well, my mother says I was born performing, that I just she always says that there was something about me that, you know, it was like I came alive in certain situations. And I remember we used to have a kitchen that was like a stage. So I used to direct all my cousins in shows all the time. 
And then I kind of forgot about it for a number of years. And then when I was about 16, I went, no, there's something in this thing that I want to do. And at that point, I thought, you know, you thought acting was the only kind of way. And then I, um, I came across a degree in Australia, it's a communications degree in theatre and media. And it was a pretty famous sort of university degree, I suppose, in Bathurst in the country in New South Wales for creating people that were really great in the theatre industry in all different kinds of ways, lots of of jack-of-all-trade kind of people. So I got a pre-acceptance to go there before I even got my HSC results and I found out a few years later that I was a wild card choice by the by the people who, who chose who went, that they weren't sure I was going to be uh, the right material for the course, but there was something about me. And so this has been a common theme. There's something about you. And so that was a, such a great experience. And they actually, two of the teachers from there, two of the lecturers had actually been to Delate to the physical theatre school I later went to. And so they had this whole philosophy of the actor-creator which was just beautiful. So the belief that as a performer, you can also create your own work. As an actor, you can create your own work. You don't need to be the the pawn in the dialogue or in the director's eye or whatever. So this was something I really fell in love with. I loved the freedom and the possibility of that, of really being able to actually be in charge of my own career. And that, that was a huge learning for me. And then after I finished there, i discovered street theatre. I saw street theatre in action a number of times. I specifically remember seeing a very famous Spanish clown who was in Australia one year for Adelaide Fringe and some other things and his name was Leandra. Leandra. And he was like nothing I'd ever seen before. It was this beautiful play, you know, that European style of show, just play. And it was actually really, it was theatre on the street. It wasn't street theatre, it was theatre on the street. And I just fell in love with it. And then at that same time, uh, uh, a band, you may know them, uh, Paul Morocco, Olay, British, he's British. And then, you know, um, the Doug Anthony All-Stars were another thing that I saw. I just sort of saw this whole bunch of street theatre that wasn't that sort of Oh, it sounds derogatory, but that kind of dirty hippie type thing, but this real theatre on the street sort of. And I just went, that is what I want to do. I was so like in awe of the engagement of just random bunch of people on the street being brought together, whether they're at a festival or not is really irrelevant. Like it's still whether they know they're going to see something or whether they're just walking down the street, the experience is the same, I think that they just get brought into this thing and their life is transformed for half an hour, 45 minutes, and, mm-hmm. and they, be, they have this shared experience, this shared joy. And I just went, that is what I want to do with my life. And, yeah, yeah it was all up from there really. Well, actually it was all, <laughs> all, all risk and, and, <laughs> and weirdness, but, yeah. <laughs> well, look, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of risk and uh, weirdness. No. I think maybe it's a, a key trait of being a good occupational philosopher, John, yeah. would you say? So, <laughs> I would. A little, bit of risk, yeah. a little bit of weirdness. Now, look, really building on that, yeah, you, you went and studied at a school in the States, and I've read that not many Australians have uh, have been there at all. And mm. If I got this right, it sounds like a coffee, but delatte. Yeah. Would that be correct? Is that the yes. right way to say it? Yeah. And, of course, reading on their website and it says, The director says, it's a place that is founded in creativity, the transformation in the student to be open, vulnerable and available. 
There is something in the imagined world on stage which expands what it is to be human. Now, look, we sort of spoke about that word human before, but when you think around a student being open and vulnerable, what's the thoughts behind that and how does it relate to performance? Because the more vulnerable you can be, the more honest and truthful you are. Therefore, the more you are truly creating a moment of shared experience, I think. So vulnerability is how we create real connection. I think it's in the culture code that I read it that the amygdala, amygdala, and I call it the amygdala, anyway, yeah. that part of your brain, that it, its job is to protect you. That's what it does all the time, protect, 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 protect. Then the minute it feels a sense of belonging, its whole job does a 180. It does a 180 and turns its job into actual like forging connection. So while its job is to prevent you from being hurt, its job then becomes forging connection the minute it gets the sense that it's allowed to belong. So what we understand from that is that vulnerability actually becomes before trust. We think that trust is when we have trust, we can be vulnerable, but actually it's being vulnerable that allows us to forge trust in our life. So by being vulnerable as an artist, as a performer, then you are forging trust with your audience right? You're showing them that it's okay. So as when we're on stage, we're not there to be perfect. We're actually there to show warts and all and be very human, be very real and, and to allow people to laugh at and feel okay about all the shit that they fuck up in their life. I hope I'm allowed to say that, you know, yeah, all this stuff that goes wrong, you know, just, oh my God, just on a side note there, have you seen or heard the Book of Mormon? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I have. Have <laughs> yeah. you heard that third, I think it's the third song in the damn musical? I had a visceral reaction to the fact that someone wrote that song and it is part of a famous musical. I'm like, you freaking go. How on earth did that happen? I'm going to fuck you in all these places. And then the last one is in the eye and in the other eye. And I'm just like, how does someone get to write that? And it becomes this worldwide phenomena. This I love. That is vulnerability. That is humanness. It connects to so much of the stuff that we kind of do if you think about this being a loosely based business podcast and the kind of work that we might see ourselves doing with teams and leaders and organizations. That whole thing about being vulnerable, there's a lot of talk about humans, leaders being more human, leaders being vulnerable. And it seems to go to that because it starts to have leaders think about what environment they wish to create for mm. employees to, to work in, to build that trust, to be truthful, et cetera. That seems to be a key thing that leaders need to do to engage employees, for example. But just that leaders being vulnerable, you'd see that as being really key for them if they want to really sort of have a significant impact or transform things. Oh, absolutely. Like I actually do some workshop stuff myself with um, especially small to medium businesses and their teams. And one of the things that I really promote is the idea that that you can't, try and squeeze a person into a job. A job has to actually be molded to fit a person. That's when we become humans at work, right? 
And we need to be 100% human at work because that's when we're going to excel. We're going to feel like we belong. We're going to be able to be vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable and open, then the best of us comes out. We shine, right? We shine when we're allowed to be exactly who we are rather than wearing a mask or hiding from things or having to be better than we think we are or having to compete. Like if we're actually allowed to walk through life as completely who we are and who we're meant to be, we're all so incredibly different and we all have such massive, massive value, massive things to contribute for exactly who we are, not for who someone's trying to make us or for what we should be, what we should be, that's inverted commas for people who are listening, should. Um, <laughs> inverted commas, that's what they're called, that's what they're called isn't it? Speech, yeah, art, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, little finger signs. I was going to say. Funny yeah, ears. Rabbit ears. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, oh, I have such a creative, crazy creative brain. I just lose track of what I'm saying all the time. We're off on a tangent. Just a bit. Is that, is that, so one of the things we often hear as well, Tamara, is they say, oh, you need to be authentic. Is that authenticity and vulnerability? Is that two sides of the same coin then, as you would see it? I hate the word authentic, just to be really blunt. Um, not because I think it's a bad word, but I think it gets overused in a bad context in sort of as mm. a tokenism. I think okay, that authentic yeah. is similar to vulnerable. I do think so. I think vulnerable for me is more real. It's more honest. It's more exactly what it is. It's the process of being who you are. And being who you are means a number of things. It means that you're really crap at some things. <laughs> you're really great at other things. You know that you will always make mistakes because humans are constantly learning and growing. And one of my favorite things to think about every time I have to do something that makes me uncomfortable is, well, it's better to be growing than to be living in regret. And I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche, but I think about it all the time because basically what are your choices in life? You are going to sit around fitting perfectly into the status quo, which means you've got a job, you come home from work, you have a, a beer, you watch the TV, you go to bed, you get up the next day, you do the same thing. Or you're going to go, no, actually, I don't want to fit into that. I want to live my life in the way that is true to me. And I think so many people get caught in the rapids of what the status quo is and they can't even find a rock to hang on to you know in the hope that they might be able to take a different path or they're not even told that there is a different path and so mm. I think that it's the job of leaders to allow their team members to understand that there is a path that's specifically designed for them and the value that they have and that that can only happen by us not having to mask up all the time. And mask up has a different connotation these days. It's that stupid fabric thing you wear across your face. But, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, I just, for me, it's about less judgment and more responsibility. It's about owning that you are the only one who can control anything in your life. And so the more that we give people, especially in teams, as leaders, the opportunity to rise into who they are, and to really feel proud of that and proud of what they can contribute rather than trying to make them wear an ill-fitting suit, if you want me to put it that yeah. way. Am That's I making it? I just want <laughs> No, absolutely. There's so much in here, Tamara, and it just brought me back to something you said earlier when you said about one of the experiences of the degree that you had. You said you were a wild card, and you said that uh, they said there's something about you. And I thought, that's a lovely phrase that you've had people that recognize there's something about you. 
And leaders can do that with everybody, can't they? They recognize their people and they say, there's something about you. And then that allows them to step up and be who they want to be. Now, Tamara, you have an alter ego, and I'm not sure if I'm going to say it right. Kiki Batorovic <laughs> is described as the foreign ambassador of funniness, the forbidden love child of Dame Edna and Borat. Now, Kiki uses helpings of laughter to reconnect humans to themselves and each other. You give people a chance to come together to be uplifted, relax, vulnerable, and laugh their asses off. So, Kiki, as your alter ego, and I'm interested in this notion of an alter ego, did, did Kiki find you or did you find her or how did that come about like what's the is there a creative process there or is it a, a moment of enlightenment no there's, def- Tell us. there's definitely yeah, a right. creative process and I don't think that creativity is necessarily a talent I think it's work I do think that creativity is a practice that you have to work on <laughs> and do <laughs> or otherwise it it's not some fancy thing that's just in the stars it's like any skill. It's something you have to work with. And um, I work from going to Delate, from going to physical theatre school in California. This is where I learnt a lot of this stuff is that so we worked from the basis of clown or physicalization of character. And so a lot of what we do and the training is around being able to express emotion physically and expression emotion in your body. So for me, I like to create characters that are of physical as well as verbal and the characters are when they're created from clown then the notion depending what you believe is really that it's a part of you it's a part of you that gets accelerated highlighted exaggerated so one of my past characters Shirley Sunflower she was very much sort of a part of me as well and Kiki is a different part of me Kiki's She's who I wish I could be every day. She's so brave and she's so, you know, <laughs> honest and to the point and sassy, but she's still so lovable. Like she totally owns it. And that's what I love about her. It's what people love about her. And I secretly would like to be a lot more like her. She's amazing. And I have to sometimes remind myself. And people say to me, they go, you talk about her as someone else. Like she's you. And I'm like, I know. I know she's me. Isn't that awesome? I wish I could access that part of me more readily without having to don the costume, you know, because she is a full-blown part of me and a part of me that I love and is a pleasure. I wish I could be her a bit more often. Yeah. Yeah, I I noticed that as well, Tamara, that you talked about her outside of yourself quite distinctly. She had separate boundaries to you. But I presume then, we all have an alter ego then we could find. This sounds quite an exciting task for us all (laughs) to say, right, where may we find our alter egos? Well, they're with you. How do we go about it? They're with you all the time. Like that's the thing. I developed this thing. I'm still working on it, but it's called the League of, I call it the League of Extraordinary Chickers, but, you know, it could apply to men too. So it could be the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I guess, or whatever, League of Extraordinary Blokes. Or just the League of Extraordinary Humans. Let's like forget gender because, <laughs> by the way, these days gender is supposed to be forgotten. So let's forget it. That's a hard one to get your head around when you're in your mid 40s, I have to say. That's one of the ones <laughs> I, I struggle with. Like, they know they is more than one person. And then I'm like, no, just get it in your head. It's okay. It's grammatically <laughs> incorrect, but it's okay. Anyway, 
or humans. We go with extraordinary League of Humans. I think that's a good yeah, And so for me, in the development of the way I've done it, there are eight. There are eight U's, and they're all together on the bus. And what you need to do in life is choose who's driving the bus at a certain time, right? So there's a different you that's right for each situation. It's not a mask. It's just a different part of you that has the most capacity to deal with each situation. And you have to tell the others to get up the back of the bus and leave you alone because you've got this. And the wrong one driving the bus is how we get in trouble. And that's why I think it's actually really important that we understand all of our different, you know, personalities, because then we get to take a breath in each moment and decide who's best to be up front right now. So mine, I have uh, Latina Mama, and Latina Mama is like the big nurturing breasted lady who just is kind and comforting and brings you in and keeps you warm and safe. And then I have Sergeant Major Sydney. Now that bitch gets shit done, but she does not accept laziness or inaction or any of those things, right? Now she's great, but sometimes Latina mama needs to come in and go, Sergeant Major, get to the back of the bus. Tamara needs a hug and you're being too hard on her. You know what I mean? And then there's Cheeky. So Cheeky's like, my little child, the child inside of me. She's excited by everything, curious about everything. She has no feelings of lack of confidence or any of that stuff because the world is just like this big game and she just loves it. And so she's really important to the creative process because there's no boundaries with her. She's just like playful and fun and everyone's exciting. So there are more, there are more. It's sort of like uh, disc profiling or HBDI profiling on creative steroids, isn't it? Like it's it's like the next level. It's not like I'm the red, yellow, blue, green. It's it's not like you're the Latina mama and kicky bit of a bitch is in the, you know, she's not needed. I really like this. It's um just thinking a little bit about, a little bit deeper around the complex people mm. that we are. And I think maybe sometimes you often hear like, I'm with those friends. When I'm with those friends, they bring out, that certain part. I mean, that maybe could be brings out the bad person or, you know, when, you, when you're a kid, your mum always says, oh, those boys, they don't bring out the best in you. But there's also like certain friends that maybe bring you out a little bit more or you might with a group of people, you'd be that really loud version of yourself. And then other people, you can be like, I can just be a little bit more chilled when I'm with you. So you can there's a lot more to, I guess, what you're mm. talking about than you might sort of think when you scrape the surface, how we're sort of those complex, interesting thoroughly interesting human being my head's buzzing with questions it's just it's and it was almost to say it's not where may we find our alter ego the better question seems to be is we have them it's almost a how do we take the time to sit and recognize them and then think about where they can be useful and when they where each one of those should be driving the bus to take your analogy it's absolutely and you know i've had um you know to be frank and honest about it over the last few years some struggles in my marriage in my personal relationship and it was very interesting that my first instinct as a human as those things happened was to be quite like you know kind of a bit finger pointy you know like well it's because you do this it's you do that and then I really like when I looked at that stuff and this is where I can say that those alter egos those extraordinary humans actually really helped me out because I would go okay so 
that's fine that he does that. But how do I take responsibility for my role in it? And how do I be a leader in our relationship and create change by choosing who the right person to drive the bus at the right time? So, you know, Sergeant Major Sydney probably isn't the right one to drive the bus when I need to have a caring and compassionate conversation <laughs> with my husband. And I need to be curious about those things and, and work out how we rebuild whatever we need to rebuild or whatever it is that we had to do. And it was a very adult thing because you know what? I was cranky that I had to drive the bus at all. I wanted him to drive the bus. But the point is, it's not, it's my life. I have to drive my own bus. He's not driving my bus. He's driving his bus. And and how very nice when we stop overnight in the long bus parking and we get to be together, right? But, But it's like, you just need to, I guess it's that thing of taking responsibility. And part of doing that is understanding really who you are. I mean, it's really the only pleasure of getting older, right? Like (laughs) the fact that you can be more complex and understanding. Now, I'm just thinking as a parent, I'm examining myself. I think I've got a character, (laughs) Captain Crack the Shits. So so I think I need to be um, uh, my captain, I mean, my (laughs) Mr. Mr. Good Vibes a little bit more often. So I'm just interested in parenting because this is a really nice who's the person we might take to this situation because, you know, as we know, humans, we're complex entities and our kids are all their own version of their weird, wonderful, complex entity as well. Do you have a couple with the kids or, like I said, one which comes out more often than the other? I try a lot to be very curious and playful with the kids so have that real cheeky thing. But then, of course, I also do have to be an adult, (laughs) a responsible one. And so I think that probably... It's more of the, well, I'm often director T, as I call her. So that's the one who has the big picture, the overview of our life, and she's in charge of things. Director T can be a bit of a martyr, though. So you have to watch that side of her. She likes to, you know, go, oh, it's fine. I'll do it. And quite frankly, she bores me with that attitude. I don't like that. I would really like her to get control of herself (laughs) in that way and not behave like that because it's a waste of her time and energy. But then, um, Obviously, there's my lover and she, my lover for me is huge with the kids, trying to have that affection and that love all the time. But then I think it might, the, the sort of humanitarian is there too. I, I, it's that, it's the ability to say I'm sorry or I was wrong as a parent and how do I do that? Like, because I have a captain crack the shits too. And, um, <laughs> and sometimes after uh-huh. that, you know, it's really important that, that I'm able to go, okay, right, well, this is why I crack the shits, but I shouldn't have raised my voice. It's not great to raise my voice, but I did it in the moment and that's okay because I'm a human. So, look, as part of being good occupational philosophers, we like to run thought experiments to help us be as curious as we can and expand our minds. And today's thought experiment is about love parents. Now, the reason this came about is it said that Kiki is the love child of Borat and Dame Edna. So, we're thinking we're going to talk around love parents. Now, John, do you want to take it from here? Absolutely, yeah. We've got some real challenging, tough questions here, but give it your best shot tomorrow. We've got five of these for you. Uh, And what we want you to do is to guess who the love parents are of the person (laughs) that we tell you okay and we'll we'll just top up your score at the end of this okay so um, the first up is donald trump that's (laughs) donald 
Trump. Who are the love parents of Donald Trump? Satan <laughs> and um oh Satan and um oh Bronwyn Bishop. Sorry, that's an Australianism. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> Uh, well, that's uh, that's a fantastic combination. Unfortunately, it's wrong. It's actually uh, a pumpkin and a massive baby. So, right. so uh, let, let's see how you go on the next one. Well, right. so next up, we've got someone uh, closer to home. Do you want to take that one, uh, Simon? Okay, yeah. So who are the love parents of Chris Hemsworth, the Australian actor? <laughs> Gina Davis and... Um... Oh, let me think about that. Gina Davis and oh, George Clooney. Gina Davis and George Clooney. <laughs> well, it's a very good guess, but unfortunately that's not the right answer. He is the love child of Kim Kardashian and the Norse god Odin. <laughs> oh, yeah, see, I should have gone mythical for the, yeah, should have. George Clooney just wasn't cutting, wasn't high enough. I was batting before. Uh, <laughs> right, John, you have our, have our next one. I do, yeah. This one is, uh, I think you'll know him, Russell Brand. Have you heard of Russell yes, Brand? Yes, I know Russell yeah, Brand. Canadian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Russell Brand. Russell Brand. Who are the love parents of Russell Brand? Oh, Jesus. Um. No, he's, he's <laughs> definitely. your first guess? <laughs> <laughs> Got the same hairdo. Yeah. Um, oh, the love parents of Russell Brand. Oh, my God. Um, um, the Karma Sutra. <laughs> that the, the position or the person? Oh, hi, Karma. Either. It's the Sutra. The, <sighs> the Karma Sutra and um, rock and roll. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> now, look, whilst I think that is actually a better answer than the real answer, which is Elton John and a King Charles Spaniel. <laughs> So, look, yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> you're not going that well on uh, thought experiment. But, look, we'll we'll keep pushing on. Now, this is the singer Adele. Who are the love parents of Adele? <sighs> Taylor Swift and Shania Twain. That's <laughs> oh, a good answer. But, unfortunately, the correct answer is Elton John and Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Should have known. How did I not know that? I know this is uh, it's not going well. But look, you've got a ch- you've got a chance to redeem yourself for this last one. This is the last one. Okay, Sarah. last one. Uh, so this is Jacinda Arden. Who are the love parents of Jacinda Arden? Ah, uh, Brené Brown and Barack Obama. Ooh, that's a nice combo, but uh, it's wrong. It's actually Scarlett Johansson and Kevin from Accounts. <laughs> wow, she really did well for herself coming from that background. <laughs> now, Tamara, in your performances, you speak of gently nudging people out of their comfort zones to discover that there is always more and that people are naturally willing to connect and let their guard down Sometimes they just need an environment that makes that okay. Mm. So, look, what are some of those key elements of creating that environment where people let their guard down and, you know, that willingness to connect and Mm. what does that look like? 
Well, I think in a show circumstance or in a in a festival circumstance, because we curate a lot of products for festivals and and run some of our own as well. That's about creating connection and relaxation and almost it's almost the transportation of people into another element of life, another level of life. You know, it's that sort of relaxation. It's just letting go. It's just kicking back. So I think that allowing people to relax and laughter and that idea of being part of something bigger than themselves but still feeling relaxed is certainly creates that environment. With my shows personally, I use volunteers from the audience. So I have a really good sense of whether I, what kind of human a human is. <laughs> I've always had a good sense of that and can pick it quite quickly. So I love choosing those people who often are having two male volunteers. I will choose one who I think is more out there and another one who needs a bit more prodding. And it's just a lovely scenario. Like they become my fellow players and it's so beautiful. And their joy, like their joy of knowing that they've come on stage and they've done something and they've helped to create laughter. I mean, it's just beautiful. The number of times people will go, oh, I never thought I'd do anything like that. Oh, that was really cool. Thanks, you know. It's really nice. And then, of course, their wives get a total kick out of it, obviously, as do their children and, you know, whatever. They become famous for a minute and they love it, you know. It's amazing how how much it fills people up because mostly people just want to belong. They just want to feel valuable and important and valued. It's not freaking rocket science is it but yet we seem to have so much trouble doing it for each other and you know what is wrong with the world and if I was prime minister then I think there's also in a work environment where I think that's a whole nother thing and you know with the work that I do with companies on owning the stage or those kind of things that we talk about I mean that's not about people being able to present like a speaker this is just about people being able to present to their team to present to their boss to talk to each other in a way that that again comes from who are their extraordinary humans and what are they bringing to the table and how are they able to do that with authenticity and vulnerability and so In that realm, I think it's all about building the confidence of how much value you have as a human being. Just because you're not an elite sports star or a famous Instagram pouter or whatever the hell else, you know, you still have massive value, massive value. Like I, my mum passed away a few years ago and I know that what she contributed to this world in her work was around helping people with disabilities. But her, the thing that she was most proud of was bringing up two daughters. That was what she was most proud of. Now, that, that is not having, you know, that's not being Richard Branson and being the first man into space or whatever. That is just literally going, I am so proud of myself for bringing up two daughters. And I think that is, yeah, that's the thing. As you were saying that, Tamara, it's just made me think of one of the comments about your Kiki character. And it was saying that uh, Kiki makes people feel at ease and empowers them to be at their best and they leave the stage heroes. And again, I just thought that was wonderful again to be able to encapsulate that as a leader or someone within any environment to actually sort of draw the best out of people and make them feel good, albeit that they're outside of their comfort zone. Mm. You don't take them too far that they suddenly go, whoa. Yeah, don't freak out. And they suddenly ease into it. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. Well, I also believe that we should push ourselves to have discomfort every day because discomfort is growth and growth is how we actually allow ourselves to be what we're supposed to be. I I have a bit of a 
hippy, dippy, cliched. It's not really cliched. Actually, I shouldn't undermine it like that at all. Strike that. I believe, <laughs> I believe that we, we are all here for a reason and we do all have a role to play, even the evil fuckers, because sometimes that evilness, we have to butt up against bad and evilness or misguidedness or whatever in order to find the, the more pure pathway too, right? Like we can't become better if we don't see bad. You know what I mean? Is that? Yeah, nothing's ever in a straight line, is no, it, I guess? That's right. and that's, uh, and so maybe that probably helps us with our next question because when I talk around comfort zones, we often think around that, that physical comfort zone, like I don't want to do that, stand on the cliff or mm. whatever that may mm. be. But I, we also um, spend a lot of time talking around that t- creative comfort zone. And I think it's like when you're, uh, say, one of the guys come up on the stage, say, I didn't think I could have ever done that. Physically, they knew they could have lifted you up or they could have stood there with a sign or done a a twirl. But there's that emotional and creative comfort zone. And given that the business world says they're screaming out for creativity, ingenuity, people who look at the world differently, more curious cats, et cetera, et cetera, what are some things we do to help people get out of their creative comfort zone? Because I think often that that is bigger than like that thing which holds us back is bigger than any sort of physical comfort Mm. zone. Absolutely. The amount of trash talking that people do inside their own head is phenomenally frightful to me. And I know that because I have a head and it trash talks. (laughs) I'm not any better at that. Like the amount of quieting you need to do of your own demons, like the quality of your life is won and lost inside your own brain. And that is just a fact. And I think that like it's definitely a struggle of mine and I, people go to me, oh, but you've got to be so confident. You get on stage in front of people for a living and um, you know what, my time on stage is when I am completely present, 100% in the moment and when I have the most joy in my life, absolutely without any kind of hesitation, is that the truth? So how do I continue to believe in my own creativity and help to forge their creativity of others well that's just super difficult because and I'll tell you why it's really difficult do you know that children laugh something like 350 times a day by the time you're an adult you're lucky if you laugh 15 times a day I use that example as an example of the whole way that we approach life as adults Everything becomes rigid and has to fit in a box and we have to be John and not Jack, you know. We have to pay the mortgage. We have to do, you know, and so then creativity, risk, play, uh, laughter, nonsense, silliness, they all get left behind and we have to fight really hard to keep them in our lives. We implemented, we don't do it now, but for a period of time we had 8, 10 a.m. is for dancing and I got the kids to dance in the five minutes before they got on the bus when we left the house and to watch their own self-consciousness around doing that even just in our living room with the three of us was really interesting and particularly with my daughter at the time how self-conscious she was about whether or not she could dance and I'm like I don't care if you can dance it's not about how good you are at dancing it's about changing your state it's about leaving the house happy and filled with joy and I believe we all should whatever it is for you dance like nobody's watching as often as we can and and cling with the strongest of fingernails 
to play and to childlike stuff and to nonsense and silliness and laughter because it's where we become undone as adults, I think. And that includes at work and in life and in play. I just, and bringing that 100% humanness, that sense of play and laughter and that risk into work, that's where the future is. And people and companies that don't do that, I think will be innovated out, if you know what I mean. Other things will come in and take over, even our big things, like even our banks, I think, eventually. Someone's going to come in and disrupt even things like the banking and phone and internet companies. I mean, that's already happened. If you're not going to be the provider and the culture of something that's special, I think you're going to find that you're going to disappear in the next 50 years. I really do. I think we're going to become less and less tolerant of that. We are evolving as humans at the moment, I believe. Well, enough of us are. Enough of us are. And we <laughs> are going to drag the math. others with us. We are going to drag the others with us. It's like, um, you know, herd immunity. We are going to have herd immunity against assholes. It is just going to happen. <laughs> Maybe just leading on then, obviously, as we say time and time again, you know, we're the the not so serious business podcast. So we are trying to distill some of these thoughts and ideas into how people come to their, their work, whatever that is, wherever it is, whoever it's with. Do you have some advice then for people who can start to bring in more laughter, fun, human connection, vulnerability into their place of work? As individuals, firstly, maybe thinking about yourself as just coming into work, what can you do that might help? Well, I think it comes back to that thing of vulnerability and and trust, that vulnerability comes before trust. So we all need to take more risk in showing our vulnerable side and actually bringing that to work. And the only way that the culture gets to change is as each individual changes it. As I said, herd immunity against the assholes, let's come in as the good people and learn to make that change and then as organizations as teams and and that includes in middle levels and all of that stuff you don't need to be at the top to make this happen but with my I have one team member one permanent team member and her and I even though there's only two of us we check in with each other every morning and every afternoon and then we have a weekly a beginning of the week and end of week check-in and one of my favorite questions that we have in our morning check-in is we have one business share and one personal share. So every morning I hear how she feels personally and how she feels about work today. And I cannot tell you, that is so simple. It would take every organisation 15 minutes in their small teams to have a stand-up quick runaround of four simple questions that connect, create vulnerability and thereby trust and a sense of belonging. And then you have a real team. And in that real team, what happens? Real growth, real action, real creativity, real innovation, real change. Fuck off assholes. Do you know what I mean? Like that's what happens. All right. Now, so look, let's say um, there's some really nice things to put that into a team. Now, let's say you're advising a CEO or mentoring a CEO and you want to help them transform their culture. So I understand that piece around vulnerability and trust and human connection. What about the one around actually just making a great place to work and let's say a little bit more laughter, a little bit more fun? And probably the third one is creativity because I think that's the one which people really struggle to harness and the thing being, oh, we don't want people to be too creative, that might be too risky 
or we don't want people to always be laughing their asses off or something because we need to actually get some work done and are you always on the foosball table and once you do something you're happy but your KPIs are, are down so there's a bit of this sort of tension mm-hmm. in the middle of that so let's say you're a, a CEO you're mentoring a CEO what were some of those uh, just maybe some really simple things you might suggest to maybe create a, a workplace culture a little bit more laughter a little bit more fun a little bit more creativity so mm-hmm. that builds productivity rather than they're a great bunch of people where they haven't hit the sales targets for 10 years. <laughs> I think one of the things that I would suggest first and foremost, so this is actually a UK company that I heard this from as well. They have this great concept of co-elevation. And one of the best questions I heard him say that he likes to be asked is tell me one thing I don't want to hear about myself or about the way the company's running. And this really stuck with me and I went, oh, that I'm putting that in my stuff, <laughs> like stealing it. Thank you very much. Cheat and get away with it. I think that this notion of you are not above anyone else in a workplace, that everyone, it takes all of you to make it happen. You're not at the top of the tree and everyone else is below you. That I think in itself creates a beautiful, safe environment. And then in terms of the play, the sense of play and, you know, having fun and all of those things, I think it's kind of that thing of a watch pot never boils, isn't it? It's like if you're hanging over people and they've got no feeling of freedom, how can you be creative or have great thought or see a big picture if you're always under stress or under threat? We don't function under threat. We shut down, right? So, I think that while it's great, you know, the Googles in the world and whatever who have this sense of a bit of freedom and play and all of those things, apparently, I don't know, I've never worked for Google, but what you read, they get touted as this. I think that while play and fun are great and really important, I do think it still needs to have some kind of structure around it. But I think play and fun comes with vulnerability, trust, respect, humanness. I think you can implement it all you like, but I think it's actually something that comes with that feeling of safety, that feeling of belonging, that feeling of being able to contribute and feel important, feel like you are worth something and worth something to the company or to the work environment, if that makes sense. Hey, tomorrow it's time for another thought experiment. You don't have to worry so much about this one. There's no point scoring here. We just want your advice as an agony aunt because we get flooded with listeners' questions. And so we just like to share some of those with you and, yeah, get your advice and respond to some people with some real tricky problems. Uh, I'll start with this one first. This is uh, from Joanna. She's in Perth. She said, I recently saw one of your shows and laughed my ass off. I cannot reattach it and I'm now in a great deal of discomfort when I try to sit down. Can I get a refund? (laughs) Well, (laughs) no is the short answer. You may not. (laughs) Primarily because in that part of the world, I was most likely working at an outdoor event where it was free for you to watch anyway, Joanna. So don't be so cheeky. And secondly, (laughs) these days they can reattach anything and usually with improvements. So... (laughs) You've got a better ass than before. So, uh, well, there's the option of that anyway. Yeah. Quit your wine. Some people like to be, have a little less on their ass as well. So, and really laughing is a very effective way to do that. Beats the gym, surely. Now, we've got another question. This is from Barry. 
He lives in Barry in South Wales, which is unusual. So um, his question is, I love your idea of dressing up as my alter ego. I decided to shake up a team meeting by going dressed as Captain Underpants, who is my alter ego. I'm now facing a disciplinary charge from HR. Any advice to help in my defence? And can I get a refund on my costume? (laughs) You'll have to take the costume refund up with the retailer from whom you purchased it. I am an exceptional human, but I cannot control the funds of organisations I do not have access to. Sorry, Barry. In terms of, you know, your problems with HR, I just need to say that in line with my ethos and ethics, Barry, you are responsible for your choices and decisions. And if you chose to go to work in your underwear, darling, you need to deal with the consequences. But good on you. Great, great, great idea. We've just got time for one more tomorrow. So this is uh, from Tracy in Geraldton, Western Australia. And she says, well, I think this one's more of a philosophical question, actually, tomorrow. She Mm -hmm. said, I told one of your jokes at the recent funeral of my late great aunt Maud, but nobody laughed. Was your joke still funny? (laughs) And can I get a refund? (laughs) I get the feeling that people don't understand the starving artist mentality with all this refund request. (laughs) Okay, so here's one thing I have to say about jokes. Jokes are usually when they are, you are saying someone else's joke It often isn't written for you, so therefore may not be funny for you. But also there's a little thing called context and it's something that most of us need to be aware of when we're attempting to be amusing. Context is a huge part. And also there's another one, know your audience. Kiki's work is not really designed for funerals, so perhaps you missed (laughs) your audience. Okay, time for a rapid fire round. Tamara, one thing you couldn't do without in your life at the moment. (laughs) Oh, there's about 50 answers that were very inappropriate. I'm going to say sunshine. (laughs) Sunshine. I love sunshine. That's lovely. I like that answer. (laughs) I want to know what the other 49 are, though. (laughs) The first thing I thought of was my bum hole. And that's the first time anyone said that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm totally cracking myself up here. <laughs> so, second question. We are building the Occupational Philosopher's Manigesto. See what we did there. We have our own manifesto. We've got the Manigesto. So what one thing of all your learning do you think should be included? What one thing of all my learning should be included? Oh, I think that this rapid fire, (laughs) not being very rapid, am I? I think one thing from all my learning, honestly, that as humans, we just always, always, always make mistakes. So just stop trying to be perfect because it ain't going to happen. All right, now that leads into our next one. Is there a favourite quote you would share that might have been a guiding light for you? Yeah, there is. I had a few actually. To quote Brené Brown, one of my favourites is strong back, soft front, wild heart. Love this quote. I think they're words to live by. Strong back, soft front, wild heart. And my other one is that 
it's a Tony Robbins quote, I believe. So sorry about that. That uh, <laughs> love we like Tony. Tony. <laughs> love That's Tony. That um, the learning never stops. It's constant and never ending improvement. Love it. Final one here, Tamara. So look, let's imagine the later stages of life, the twilight years, and you're being guided into the retirement home and there's everybody sat there in the lounge. How would you like to be introduced at your retirement home? So they might say, here's Tamara. She is totally broken, fucked up human who has lived every moment to the best of her ability. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so Tamara, that's brought us to the end of a very, very enlightening, funny and interesting conversation. Probably the first time we've, we're going to have to put a parental guidance <laughs> on our, our show, but that's all right. I like it. Just to wrap up, what, what are you up to next? Is there a project coming up or something which is really keeping you busy or interested? Yeah, I'm running a program called MC Me, The Voice of Viva, which is a five-month program to create six brand new MCs for an event that happens later in the year. So these six people new to doing that will run three stages at a festival in November. So we've got a long, slow process of training them into that. And I've also working on a project called Bike the Cultural Gong, which is going to be a moving festival that I have, uh, am the director of and curator of. So people will ride their bikes along a bike path for about 26, uh, I think it's 14 Ks and back again, and they'll stop off along the way in little hidden locations and experience some culture. Little that sounds stages. amazing. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll chase you up. I'll get some details of that. So <laughs> I'd like to go myself, I think. So. Yeah. So get a, get a bit, better get your bike out, Simon. That <laughs> yeah. Good. yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> Again, anyway. And Tamara, um, where can we find you in terms of websites or socials or whatever? How can people connect with you? Probably the easiest way is through our company website, Laughter House Entertainment. I do have my own website, tamaracampbell.com.au, but um, it's shamefully terribly outdated <laughs> and needs a little rebooting. Laughter House is, is, you know, much better serviced. So that's the easiest way. I am on social media, Instagram. And Facebook, I, I'm not great with that stuff, though. Better to um, get my phone number off my website or my email off the Laughter House website and you can contact me there. Lovely. Well, Tamara, it's been an absolute pleasure. And from uh, John and I, the Occupational Philosophers, thanks so much for being on our show. Thank you for yeah. having me. What a treat. It's awesome what <laughs> it's you're doing. It's been great. <laughs> Hey, Simon, that was a great show with Tamara. I really, really enjoyed that. Very insightful and a, a whole lot of fun as well. As ever, we like to say, what did you think of the show and what's your top three tips and takeaways? As with all our guests, it's always such a hard thing to narrow down. But look, I think, number one, humanness is everything but perfect. So to be human, which she spoke about a lot, especially in some of the work that she did, it's accepting all our mistakes and our foibles, but also our intricacies and our creativity and all the weird and wonderful things that make us unique. And we're all different cats, as we always say, John. So humanness <laughs> is everything but perfect. Look, the second one I like, and she spoke a lot about vulnerability 
And it's one of those words which are bandied about loads as we spoke. You know, leaders, we need to be more vulnerable. And I think maybe people will shriek a little bit inside when they hear that. But really that vulnerability piece was just sort of being a little bit sharing a little bit more about who yourself and you don't know everything and vulnerability becomes before trust rather than the other way around so that was really nice and I guess it just goes back to being human like don't be scared of being a human we're not perfect even though we all strive to be be okay that we're, we're a little bit different and look, the third one was I uh, really liked around your personalities like which personality are you and we've all got these or not your personalities you're different What's the word for them? I've forgotten. Oh, the alter egos. The alter egos. Alter egos. And I really like the thought around which part of me is going to turn up to this conversation. And I've really been thinking about this, maybe some of the conversations you have with people, which part will you send forward? And does it need to be the, the bit which is, at boiling point, maybe it could be the, the cool, chill part of your personality, your cool alter ego. So they're my, um, they're my three things which really, really took me, made me think differently, I would say, in this episode, which is what we aim for. Yeah, and what about you, John? What are your takeaways or maybe your key insights? Yeah, just building on those, take all of those. But also I caught one right at the start, which I liked, where Tamara was talking about her initial time in college and that she got into one of her first degree courses because although she wasn't the right profile or had the right qualifications I think they said that she was a wild card and they said there was something about you and I just thought that was a lovely sentiment to think that in businesses well in anything to have someone go there's something about you is quite nice so we all have something about us and it's just good that uh, if people can spot that something about us um, it liberates us a little. So I like that. There's something about you. And then creativity is work. Creativity is practice. It's not a thing. It's not that one is creative or not creative. It's something that we can practice at and just put into our daily lives. So needs work. And I always say that creative people do creative stuff. That's the only difference between creative and creative. Like Tamara with Kiki, bit of a bish, she's practiced that craft for, I don't know, 25, 30 years and 5,000 yeah. festivals, Germany, France, South America, America, South Africa. Like, you know, she practices that craft to become that creative cat that she is. Yeah, she's yeah, she worked on that a long time. The final one would probably be the uh, question that she had for a CEO that she said, where they should ask their people, tell me one thing I don't want to hear. So a means of inviting that feedback on them. And also for them to really think about how they can create a safe environment. Because when you give people some freedom and autonomy, they do their best work. They don't function well under threat. So again, another great insight, I think. And, and that draws from her work. Yeah, that safe environment is something we'll come back to in future shows because especially in organisations, that environment we create for ideas and creativity and I guess that vulnerability as well. Some really nice yep. themes sort of, uh, that will come out in future shows. So, look, that brings us to the end, John. What do we want people to do? Well, first of all, they could get to the website again because that's building with some more resources and things. People could find out a bit more about us, about the work that we do outside of this podcast so they can read about that and connect with us if they want. I think there's obviously there's downloads there as well. I think they can. Can they email us suggestions? They can email us. We changed the email the other day, but thank you to those who have been emailing and suggesting. <laughs> but look, some of them, uh, some, not all of them have been appropriate though. 
<laughs> Apparently not. The, the people were attracting. But look, yeah, you can drop us an email if you've got a thought about a future show. And occupationalphilosophers.com would be the of website. Course. And also, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, tell your friends, subscribe and leave a review because that lets other people know about some of the things we like to talk about on the Occupational Philosophers and being a more creative, curious and imaginative cat that we were born to be. And in the meantime, stay curious, make stuff and play ball. Now, John, I've been thinking, if you had an alter ego, what would your alter ego be? Or if you got one? Well, actually, yeah, there's a, the story there is I already have one. And my alter ego Ooh. is Jack. <laughs> Leslie calls me Jack. That's the free-loving, hippie, fun guy she met when we were traveling when we first met. And John pays the mortgage. Okay, John's really boring though. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs>